Now, Derek, I know it can be hard to get Thanksgiving favorites out there on the islands, so I made your favorite pumpkin pie and mailed it to you. Have you guys gotten it yet? Oh, the one you make every year? You mean this one? What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your monster movie boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. We are coming at you with another great holiday episode. We've got the 1980s cult hit slasher that we are going to be discussing, but before then, Lauren, welcome back to to the show hey guys it's been a long time yeah wasn't emily rose your last one i think it was yes but yeah it's it's been a minute awesome well yeah we are always happy to have you on happy american thanksgiving everyone by the way it's weird that we have to say american thanksgiving does anybody really celebrate thanksgiving besides us yes canada canadian thanksgiving is in october yeah yeah true i guess they did also murder a bunch of native americans so yeah yeah pretty much well, yeah, cool. Before we get into the movie, let's discuss a couple of recommendations that we might have since we have had a little bit of cool down now from scary movie season. So let's start with our guests. As always, Lauren, what have you been getting into lately that is horror related? So I am going to stress lately here, because uh, I feel like since the last time I've been on, every time I watch something scary, I try and take note of it. And I feel like there were about 15 things I wanted to talk about, and now I can't remember most of them. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about three things that are pretty recent. So months and months and months ago, I watched a movie called The Mouse, M-A-U-S, that I believe was on Netflix. That is a independent horror film about a woman who was a survivor of the genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 90s and ends up back right. in the wilderness with her boyfriend fiance. Uh, a lot of very scary things start happening. They run into locals. It has some really interesting commentary, but it's a really dark, dark movie. And what I remember about it as being just the really standout kind of thing is... It is maybe one of the best movies I've ever seen with the whole, is this real or is this in the character's head motif? It carries okay. that, uh, I think it's for about the first half of the movie, roughly, but it does such a great job with having these scenes happen and it's not quite clear that it's in her head until about 50-60% of the way through and it was just a really, really well done movie. It looks interesting from just the stuff I just quickly googled about it. I don't know why this movie just went under the radar completely to me. Granted, I don't keep an eye out on deep cut horror. Is it a Netflix original? and air quotes that could be why it could just be one of those things that's only there and that's why you haven't seen it i don't think it was but i know it was an independent film so i don't know how much gotcha. kind of press it got but it, it was strange i was actually trying to find something that we talk about pretty commonly is a sunday afternoon horror movie yeah. where it's a horror <laughs> movie you can turn <laughs> yeah. on sunday afternoon clean the house take a nap whatever and i ended up finding this movie that was incredibly upsetting about you know a genocide survivor and but it was was really really well done it's funny you mentioned that because on our last episode was oculus and when uh, i told you that we were doing oculus you're like yeah that's a great sunday afternoon horror movie and in my mind that movie scared the <laughs> shit out of me so 
I really like Oculus. I'm, I'm excited to get to you guys' episode on that one. So speaking of something that you might have talked about in that episode, full disclosure, I have not listened yet, is Midnight Mass. I know you watched it, Aaron. Yes, yes, let's talk. We haven't actually talked about it yet, because at the time we recorded Oculus, Aaron hadn't watched it yet, and yes. I haven't watched it yet either. Yes, let's discuss. So Heather and I binged the entire thing Halloween Day. Um, we were both off work, and Crystal, who has also been on the show before, she was crashing at our place for that weekend, hanging out. So we watched the whole thing crash course in a day, which we don't normally do. So, yes, let's discuss. How did you feel about Midnight Mass? So the thing about Midnight Mass is I felt very meh on it until about the last episode and a half. And the ending is what really, really turned me around on the entire show. Yeah. I found it really scary at times, but I was also kind of, I just wasn't that into it. And then the ending just, full disclosure, I cried a lot at that ending. <laughs> yeah. It was intense. I think my biggest issues with it is, one, I think Netflix has kind of a editing issue where it felt like it simultaneously went on a bit too long, but also left out a lot of information. So in watching it, and I kind of spaced it out over a couple days, it felt like maybe there was one too many episodes, but there were also things that were really unclear to me. You know, the doctor specifically, I felt like didn't really have a lot of characterization. Uh, I wasn't able to get a lot from her character. And then she ends up being this huge plot point kind of at the end. Yeah, it does that thing where the characters that you're following in the beginning are ultimately not at all the characters that you are following by the end. Yes. Everything kind of takes a shift gradually from the point of views that it's following and who is left and who is not. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like the, the Doctor is definitely not as developed as she could have been. The main character we spend a lot of time with him and you know i guess mild spoiler alert he ultimately is not really the focal point by the end of the entire thing right i think the one character that is consistent through the entirety of it is the priest he is right. the one character that is there beginning to end that's kind of really ultimately the main character let me ask you guys this then. Lauren, I know you've seen Hill House. I don't know if you've seen Bly Manor as well. Have yes. you watched that? And that's all Flanagan. And really, my only exposure to Flanagan so far is Oculus. And it really did stay focused on the brother and the sister. But in his other work, does he shift like that a lot with character focus? Or is this more just like a midnight mass thing? All of his other stuff is very, very ensemble driven, I will say. Like, Oculus is a very tight it's really just character focusing on the brother and the sister and then you have the parents in the flashbacks and it's really those four characters are the central ones right but the emotional core of the movie is on the brother and sister when you get into hill house Bly, even Dr. Sleep, you know, you're following an ensemble through pretty much all of that. Especially, you know, that's a whole mechanism of how Hill House functions is each of the first few episodes is kind of centering on 
one of each of the siblings. And so you're getting kind of their top to bottom backstory and you feel like by the midway point, like, okay, I know who this family is. I know everybody in this family. This show is interesting because, like I mentioned, it does kind of shift, you know, and you spend more time with certain characters in certain episodes, and then it shifts to be somebody different later, but not in the distinct Hill House formula, like Lost, you know, same thing, like each episode is going to focus on one character. No, it doesn't work that way. But who you're really invested in by the end of the show does shift. Right. So it's, it's a slightly different dynamic, but I think it works, and I think it's very interesting, and... It's very much like My Heart is a Chainsaw that I mentioned on one of the last episodes where the person that you think is going to be this character in the story may not always end up ultimately being that character or fulfilling that role. Characters that you might feel one way about at the beginning, you'll feel differently about them by the end. So there's interesting shifts that happen in the show. I think one thing with this one that does make it different from Hill House and even Bly Manor is the ensemble is so much bigger. And I think with Hill House, even though you are jumping from character to character for different episodes, the flashbacks you have from certain characters also tell you things about other characters. Mm. So even though you do have that focus because it's a family set in this house, you're able to always kind of keep everyone involved. And with this one, because it's set in this town, there are a lot of moments where you just have characters drop off, where you can't sort of keep everyone pulled in at all times the way you can with the others. Yeah. Well, another thing, Lauren, that you mentioned was how even the social commentary was maybe the scariest part of the show. The social commentary aspect is is very interesting. I think, Aaron, you kind of had, or you mentioned that in our text thread, kind of talking about the sort of social commentary aspect. I mean, what I immediately took away from it at a very surface level was just, okay, this is like a commentary on how Trump's America TM has tainted and corrupted the American church. And, you know, granted, I didn't grow up Catholic, so the Catholicism angle and all the trans substantiation stuff didn't necessarily connect with me in that same way. I mean, I don't find that to be relatable because I didn't, again, grow up Catholic, but I definitely still went to a church where communion was a weird specific thing that we only did a couple of times a year. So, like, all that procedure and just kind of the importance of all that to the story is still something that I kind of connected with in the weirdly visceral way, but Yeah, on the surface, so much of the story is just about how this outside influence has kind of corrupted what the pure message is supposed to be, and how so much of the scripture has been completely twisted and misinterpreted and is now being used in like a weaponized kind of way to kind of push out the people who are other in the community and to demonize and scapegoat and shift blame or not take blame. I mean, that's that's something that explicitly a character kind of says is doesn't it feel good to like not have to feel responsible to have Mm -hmm. no regret to have no shame to have no guilt doesn't it feel good just to be able to do whatever and like not feel bad about it 
God, you just saying that kind of sent a shiver down my spine, like given like everything that's happened the last several years. Yeah. So, you know, you see characters who seem to be good, decent people kind of devolve into madness by the end. Right. The main character's parents, kind of the same thing. You kind of see how they become just completely rabid and wrapped up in everything that's going on and they can't be reasoned with, you know, right. and how eventually things kind of go where they go. But, you know, that seems to be very much to me at least what that movie was focusing on is that you know this hopeful altruistic kind of institution has just been completely turned into a weaponized weirdly culty kind of thing led by this charismatic person who is an outside weird influence and says all the right things and seemingly does all the right things, but at the end of the day is the most false prophet of false prophets. Right. Uh, that's the surface level, what it obviously seems to be about, to me at least. But, you know, so much of the rest of the show and just dealing with addiction, which is a consistent theme that comes up in Flanagan's work as well. Mm -hmm. That is certainly an element that's present in multiple characters dealing with loss and grief and family trauma. Like all the staple Mike Flanagan stuff is there and it all kind of leads to this one giant ultimate climax. Yes. But Lauren, like you said, it takes a little while to get going. And I have heard the common criticism that, oh, people monologue at the screen too much. And there's too much long dialoguing, blah, 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 back and forth. That might be true. That might be true. But I'd never found that anything was boring. I never found that anything was not important to the story that was being told. Right. I didn't feel like anything was ever superfluous. I didn't feel like anything was ever unnecessary. It was very long-winded. I mean, I am a long-winded person no not you yeah so that maybe that's why some of it connected with me right you know i don't feel like any of that time was wasted necessarily but yeah once you get to that penultimate episode where everything fully fully goes off the cliff that's where like Man, the entire five episodes before are worth sitting through just to see where everything finally culminates. Right. Because it is terrifying in kind of the most insane, I know this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but in the most insane active shooter kind of way. Yes. Like, there's just wow. something about, okay, there's way too much happening, way too quickly, way too intensely, and there's nothing you can do to slow it down. Right. And it's just completely out of control. Yeah, terrifying. And I think actually, interestingly enough, speaking about the characters, despite my giant and self-admitted crush on the, uh, the guy who plays the sheriff, he also played Owen in Bly Manor. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really like any of these characters. I actually found them all kind of infuriating or somewhat insufferable at times. Even the ones you're supposed to like, there's some that clearly, one in particular that you are set up to just hate, frankly. Yeah. And there were yeah. a lot of decisions that were made, especially in the penultimate episode, where they just didn't make sense. But the last episode kind of ties it all off very neatly, such that I was like, okay, from the sort of movie 
logic kind of thing of like, okay, I see why that character had to make that decision because now that brings us to here. But speaking of that last episode, it does end on something in horror movies that just does my head in. I can't take it. It's something that just sparks my anxiety and I find so profound and, and also just difficult to watch. That whole idea of what do you do at the end of the world yeah. and even if it's not the end of the world it's kind of the end of the world for you it's the end of your world yeah yes and this handles it so well and so beautifully in a weird way to say that was what really got me was just this final 15 minutes or so of just what do you do it was well done so all in all definitely a plus for midnight mass So yes, as my final recommendation, I am a huge fan of the Dark Pictures Anthology games. Yep. And the new one, House of Ashes, came out on October 22nd. I pre-ordered it, because of course I did. I have to say, I loved this game. Okay. I'm so glad, because you had such a bummer experience with the one before it, but I'm glad that this one really worked for you. It definitely did. And actually, to touch base on Little Hope... It does end on a thing that just kills me. It's not something I like in media. It's not something for me, which is, you know, see all these characters you've spent all this time investing in? None of them are real. Have fun. And I hate that so much. But there's a streamer I really like of horror games. A lot of your audience probably already is familiar with him. And his name is John Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. And I watched his playthrough of Little Hope. And he actually did give an analysis of Little Hope that kind of turned it around for me where I won't play it again. It's still not something for me, but he did kind of speak to the merits of the narrative. So if you are a defender of Little Hope and you like these sorts of games and you also like watching streamers, uh, I would recommend looking up John Wolfe's playthrough on YouTube. But back to House of Ashes, with this game, I think that they brought it back to what it wasn't until dawn and they just did such a good job for one thing that i really liked about it there weren't really that many jump scares which i remember playing man of medan specifically but little hope kind of as well where it felt like every third item you go to pick up was a jump scare yeah (laughs) and it got so annoying (laughs) i remember you mentioning that when we were talking about that game yeah and it was it got so obnoxious and with this one they didn't have that many but the ones they had were actually really good. Like at one point they had something that was the equivalent of that scene in Signs where the alien just walks across the road and it (laughs) scared the crap out of me. (laughs) Like It got my heart a little bit. I think the thing was it was really engaging. I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. I wasn't sure who would survive. They also did a really good job with changing location. I think one of the big issues I had with Little Hope is you're just in the same place doing the same thing over and over again. And visually, it just becomes really boring. Whereas with this one, they actually moved kind of naturally through different, very visually compelling areas, which I really liked. So it's not just all in a cavern the entire time. No. Because that's like, that's what the previews make it look like. It's the descent where you're, it's very claustrophobic and you're just in caves, systems and caverns through the whole game. But that's cool that they change up location. Yes. And I think one of the biggest things with this one is it had characters I actually liked. Specifically, there's a character named Jason I kind of liked, but really 
weirdly this character named Salim, who's played by Nick. It's either Turbe or Turabe. He played Asher in Spartacus. He played Captain Boomerang on the Flash CW series. He pretty much always plays villains. And I think this was the first thing I've seen him in where he actually played a good guy. And he's fantastic. I really like him as an actor. They got a couple big names for this game too, because who played the female lead in this? Yes, Ashley Tisdale. She was a a Disney Channel star. And I I will say my one slight negative with the game is that her animation looks really weird at times. They're clearly bringing back a lot of the same actors for these different roles. And I think that's been a huge plus with them because they don't have to like rebuild that character. Like they just kind of change the clothes and they have the movements down for the character. But for her, there were a couple moments where I was like, "Ooh, this animation looks rough. But aside from that, I think this one was the first game that really managed to incorporate the chosen dialogue moments versus the cutscenes. Because one thing that always happens in Little Hope or Man of Medan, there's a part where you're playing as a character and you have to choose what you want them to say. And you'll make the character be a reasonable, rational, compassionate, decent person. And the character goes into a cutscene and immediately is just a colossal jerk to every single person. (laughs) And it's just terrible. (laughs) So they finally seem to kind of smooth out those transitions. And it was actually a bit easier to make your characters be decent. The last thing I'll say about it is it did feel kind of strange to watch, you know, here in the year of our Lord 2021, after we have uh, left Afghanistan, because it is set in Iraq in 2003. And they do a really good job with it. I think it's a really cool setting for a horror game. They across the board knocked it out of the park 10 out of 10. But there were kind of moments where I sort of went, oof, that reads weird now. Yeah. So yeah, like maybe slightly problematic, not even quite problematic, just very strange. And it was it was really just in light of having left Afghanistan was really kind of what made it it kind of pulled you out of the game a little bit but I don't think that's anything to do with the developers so 100% would recommend it was fantastic I've actually already started my second playthrough I want to go through and find all of the secrets get all the endings figure out all the stuff with the characters awesome we ought to let James know about that Aaron because James who we had last had on for our Halloween episode on dog soldiers he's brought up that he likes or he wants to see more horror that involves soldiers going into a situation that they think they're prepared for and they're absolutely not prepared for, like military horror. And I I feel like this game is kind of in that genre. It's fantastic. And one kind of last benefit for it is that it goes south really fast. It's not something where there's a lot of dancing around, a lot of, oh, what was that? What was that noise? What's going on? Pretty much the minute one thing happens, everything just goes sideways and it's extremely well done. Awesome. All right, cool, cool. Well, uh, Derek, what have you got for us? Uh, so I'm going to start real dark and then get lighthearted by my last recommendation. Okay. So my first recommendation, I cannot remember for the life of me if I had brought this up on one of our very first episodes or not, because I do remember watching this a few years ago, and it might have been right around when we started this podcast. But I remember not finishing it for whatever reason back at the time, and I decided to finish it earlier this week when I was watching Autumn and she was taking a long nap, um, and I didn't have anything else to do. And the movie you're talking about? 
Scott is a Serbian film. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2. No, it is a 2010 American documentary called Murder by Proxy, How America Went Postal. It is directed and produced by Emil Chiaben. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's C-H-I-A-B-E-N. Probably not because I'm terrible at pronouncing names. It's also narrated by Emil. This documentary kind of looks at the phenomena in the United States of going postal. For our non-American listeners, going postal is a slang term that kind of really was popularized in the 80s and 90s about workplace shootings, like mass shootings. Uh, you know, someone just losing it because they were fired or something happened at work and they, you know, they bring a gun in and open fire and kill some of their fellow employees. This movie really tries to take a look at the timeline of this and what led up to this. And it was kind of interesting to go back and watch it because it was mostly focused up until about 2008, 2009. So it's been a decade, over a decade since all this. And it's interesting because the final thesis of the documentary, I mean, it's not hard to see where things were going to go, but like in a weird way, sort of predicts where we are now as a country. So the interesting thing is that this film, uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up as a uh, horror recommendation is this is a dark documentary. I mean, it is about mass shootings, specifically in post offices, but also in workplaces. But it's just about the phenomena of mass shootings in general and the rise of them in America. It is not an easy documentary to get through because they even show a little bit of footage caught on security cams and everything of certain shootings or they show like news reports and everything else. FYI, right up top, this movie back in the day, I think was on Netflix because I think that's how I watched it originally or at least half of it originally. It's now like fucking nowhere to be found. The only way I found it was on this website called documentaryheaven.com under like murder by proxy on the website. They have a link to a YouTube that has it uploaded on YouTube. Um, I even tried to go to like the website for the documentary to see if I could just purchase it, but I couldn't find an option to do that. So I hope this gets picked up again by streaming. Otherwise, you just kind of might have to go through the YouTube rabbit hole to find it. But kind of going into the film itself, it argues that the phenomena kind of started with two key things in American history. The first one was the Postal Reorganization Act of 1971. Yeah, hence the phrase going postal yeah yes i didn't know this i actually had to look up a lot of this stuff after watch a documentary but at one point the united states post office was part of the cabinet it was part of the american government and this law abolished that and turned the united states postal service into more of a corporate run independent agency that is just now authorized by the u.s government as official service so it's sort of kind of still part of the government but it can be run like a corporation you see where this is going. So that kind of opened up the doors to like, instead of the post office being more focused on service, their members feeling like, you know, they are part of this community and they're offering a key thing, mail. It turned into everything is about numbers. Everything is about efficiency. We have to prove how this can be cost effective. You have to justify your existence. Yeah, Yeah, justify your existence and how we can be as cheap as possible while also still maintaining like the highest amount of manpower possible. Then the other Other thing that it proposes is that the Reagan era really exploded the workplace violence because Reaganomics is so top heavy and was so focused on supervisors and CEOs giving them so much power and the benefit of the doubt. And the whole idea is that, well, if the CEO and the top is happy and like well taken care of it, all that's going to quote unquote trickle down to the middleman and the lower workers. And of course, none of that happened. It just led to widespread greed 
Hogan power being accumulated up top. This movie makes a pretty good theory that it just gave supervisors, even like mid-level supervisors, the one that are like on the floor in the post office with the workers every day, way too big of heads, way too big of egos, turned them into like sociopaths who were terrible to their employees. And kind of the freakiest, darkest moments of this documentary is when they interview some of the survivors of like certain shootings. And they really kind of first start off, they focus more on the Edmond, Oklahoma post office shooting. And then I think they also did Royal Oak as well. Those were like the two big postal shootings. Royal Oak took place in Royal Michigan in 1991. Edmond, Oklahoma took place in 1986. And I think Edmond, Oklahoma was the first big one that popularized the whole going postal phenomena. But they interviewed a lot of these survivors and people who used to work with these people. And they kind of the freakiest thing was like a couple of them were like, hey, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But like if they had to kill the right people, they kind of killed the right people. Like talking about like how they went after these supervisors that were super like terrible to them. And then like they also interviewed this one woman who was a mother of three. She's an ex postal service worker. And she was talking about how like she started getting more and more intrusive thoughts. It got to the point where like it started off, you know, maybe once a week and then got to be every day. I thought about how during one of their board meetings, there were only two entrances into the boardway. All I had to do was take a towel, lock the doors and then open up the other door and just toss a Molotov cocktail in there. And that would have taken care of everything. And she was like, when I started having thoughts about actually acting on on that, that's when I left. And she was like, that's how bad it got in the post office. But this documentary also goes on to talk about Pacific Southwest Airline Flight 7 1971 and like how that was a hijacking mass murder because a guy I think followed his boss onto that plane. It was like a disgruntled former employee of US Air. I think I've heard of this one. Yeah. If I remember correctly, yeah. They highlight that one. They highlight the Xerox murders which I didn't know this. Xerox used to have a major presence here in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Xerox mass murder event that happened back in 1999 is part of the reason why Xerox left Hawaii altogether. And, and that was again attributed to a, a technician being bullied and eventually let off. They, they kind of end the documentary on the Atlantis plastics shooting in 19 or in 2008. Yeah. And they just talk about how like not only with just these post office shootings, it kind of like a virus that kind of spread out to, you know, school shootings that we saw throughout the 90s and well into the 2000s. And keep in mind, this documentary only really goes up to 2008. Um, and we had plenty more shootings after this. It talks about how like, you know, this cultural, especially with bosses and, and the way our, our workforce is set up, it turns into this idea that it's okay to be cruel. We've embraced being cruel to each other and that everyone should be a millionaire. And the only reason why you're not a millionaire isn't because of like where you are in life or your work ethic or whatever. It's because someone else has wronged you. So it, it's just, it's interesting that this documentary brought up all these yeah. kind of feelings. <laughs> again, this was one of the like darker documentaries I think I've ever watched. So again, that is Murder by Proxy, How a America went postal. Um, yay, so much fun. Kind of on that note, you know, as far as the mass shooter phenomenon and just how that's such a weirdly specifically, you know, not exclusively, but a very specifically American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It happens exponentially more here. I just remember growing up, there was a Luby's cafeteria in the mall and we never ate there. Somebody joked about 
why don't we just go eat there for lunch one day? And my dad just kind of casually said, no, we're not going to Luby's because that's where that guy shot all those people. We're not going to go get shot. And he was making a very dark joke. But it was one of those things that like in my head as a kid, I was just like, wait, what? A guy shot up a bunch of people at a Luby's? And just learning about, yeah, this dude drove his damn truck through the front plate glass windows, shot up the place in Killeen, Texas, and killed 23 people, and then killed himself in a police standoff. You know, just random stuff like that that just, you know, it happened. It was just a random thing one day, and it just keeps happening. Yeah. You know, and it's just one of these weirdly specific things that supposedly we're just never going to find a cure for it. I guess we should just not bother. Oh my gosh. Despite all the evidence to like what could potentially uh, help slow a lot of this down, you know? Well, and think about it as when we were kids, because that term, going postal, it was already very much in the vernacular and the slang of American society, but it had just really only been like popularized maybe like five years or so before we were born. Yeah. To the point where like in the documentary, and this was one of like most haunting moments, they show all these clips from like TV shows and movies that were popular through the 80s and 90s like the Simpsons and and Naked Gun and all this shit jokes about postal workers carrying guns and gunning down people to the point where and I forgot about the scene completely and then like when they showed it on the documentary like exploded it in my mind and the original Jumanji the good one not the rock one I'm kidding I, I haven't seen the rock one so I don't know if it's good or not the original Jumanji the hunter who is the same actor who plays the dad y'all remember that scene where he goes into like the gun shop and is buying all the modern rifles and everything yeah the guy that runs the shop is like you're not going postal are you the quote is like you're not a postman by any chance are you that's right and then like he turns around and looks at him like what the fuck yeah he's wearing like the old school hunter uniform with the pith hat and everything so it looks kind of like what a post office worker would wear Mm -hmm. that movie came out in 95 dark jokes from our childhood yeah but yeah like i mean that movie is an all-ages movie. I mean, it's kind of kinder trauma-esque from when I originally watched it as a kid, but, like, it's still a family movie, and he has that postman carrying guns and shooting people joke in there. You know, it's, yeah. it's just very much part of American slang now. Yeah. But like, I think what drew me to this movie originally, it was actually brought up by Henry Zabrowski on an old uh, last podcast episode. I think it was one of their first ones they ever did on mass shooters. And one of the things he said about mass shootings, and I'll, I'll never forget this, and I think it's a perfect way to describe it. He says, it's the American disease. Yeah. That's kind of what this documentary really focuses in on. This is a very American disease. But kind of moving away from that, I have another one. And this recommendation really goes out to Jonathan Nowacki, who has been on our show a couple times. He was on our house episode with you, Lauren. And he was on our uh, episode on The Strangers. Just knowing how he likes certain like weird Japanese culture sort of stuff. My next recommendation is a classic Japanese horror manga by... Junji Ito. For those of you who don't know who Junji Ito is, he is a horror master in the manga community in Japan. His artwork goes from being horrifying to straight up gross. He does some of the most interesting body horror things I've ever seen anyone do. Yeah. This manga is Uzumaki. Have you read this, either of you? Yeah, I own it and I know for sure that I mentioned, I finally watched the movie adaptation handful of episodes back. But yeah, it's wild and I'm very 
very curious. I don't know if the Adult Swim show has started, yes or no. I didn't know it even had an Adult Swim show. <laughs> yeah, there's supposed to be like an animated adaptation of it. What? I don't know if that has actually started yet or not, but yeah, Flying Lotus is doing the music. Anyway, yeah, it's wild. It's gross. It's uh, hypnotic and fascinating and has some of the most seared into your retinas kind of awful imagery. Oh, yeah. That is all fake. It's all fake. You know, it's it's wild, like, looking at a drawing that disturbs you that hard and having to tell yourself this isn't real, you know? Yeah, and that's Junji Ito's work. And no matter what he does, that's not just Uzumaki, but Uzumaki is what he's known for, or at least one of the stories he's known for. So, Uzumaki is about a town that starts getting cursed and infected by spirals. And what I mean is literally the symbol of a spiral, the circular motion going into the single point in the middle. It more focuses on these two high school students, Kiri and her boyfriend, Shuuchi. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced. And it kind of starts off with his parents getting infected by the curse. And this isn't really spoiling too much because it's in like the first two chapters, but they both wind up being killed by it. And then it kind of is a collection of loosely following one after the other one-off stories of different ways the curse manifests in different people throughout the town. Yeah. And it eventually does lead to an overarching storyline featuring these two teenagers. What's the nature of this curse? Why is it affecting this town? And eventually like really goes into some crazy ass places by the, the end of it. I read a lot of horror comics. This by far is the scariest thing I've ever read comic book or otherwise the imagery is so nausea inducing it's anxiety inducing it's straight up jump scares on a page there is one story involving a jack-in-the-box and we'll just leave it at that and that story really <laughs> scared the shit out of me yeah but uh there's other stories of like people turning into snails and getting that spiral shell on their backs i think the washing machine and the tire are like the two that i'm just most like nope <laughs> about <laughs> yeah. hey bro you yeah. ever got so obsessed with spirals that you wanted to like turn into a spiral yourself okay there you go just uh keep in mind how a tire on a car works and how a washing machine works uh yeah <laughs> dude that first story involving his dad slowly like becoming obsessed with the spirals and then turning himself into one yeah is fucking horrifying when you see like what he does to his body yeah i, I don't know what else to say like <laughs> on one hand i'd say like don't google just go in blind but honestly if you're curious like if you want to just a taste all you even need to do is just google junji ito it's j-u-n-j-i-i-t-o and just google junji ito and then go look at google images and just kind of browse that that's what you're working with here yeah i think the story from uzumaki that's the most famous one is the one where the girl like has a spiral develop on her forehead and then in, like the spiral literally becomes her face like that's the one you see the most of in the imagery from this i have literally seen that tattoo on two different people that i know yeah in just the like small mississippi town that i live in oh wow so yeah it's a weirdly popular image yeah i've seen people wear it uh on t-shirts uh it's uh 19 chapters but if you get the full collector's 
thing that has the whole series, which I think I got it off Amazon or eBay for like 25 bucks. And it's like hardbound. It's really nice. It's 19 chapters long, 19 like stories that are all kind of wrapped together. And also he has a lost chapter that he threw in there as an extra. Oh man, the other one that really scared the crap out of me was the mosquito story that went into the umbilical cord story involving the babies and the pregnant mothers. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was that was dude. Rough. All the ones in the the hospital were terrifying. So it looks like right now it might be out of print finally. I was about to say, I got my copy on sale for like the nice hardbound anniversary one is got it for like 15 bucks, but I am looking online now and it appears to maybe be out of print because I'm seeing used copies for like 40 up. Also, it looks like the anime that's coming on Adult Swim is actually starting next October. So we still have about a year. Oh, man. Mm. I need to, like, make sure to keep an eye out. But uh, just so y'all are aware, the original run of this manga was January of 1998 to August of 1999. Strange that you said that it's out of print because I, like I said, I bought my copy like maybe two or three months ago and yeah, I tore through this thing. It It's so scary, but it kept me like wanting to go back and like reread it. Yeah. I now have some other of Junjito's work that I am um, eventually going to start making my way through. So as I go, I'll probably bring him up again. Last thing I'm going to bring up, let's end on a, a lighthearted note. I started reading a webcomic called Irma. I don't know if either of you have ever heard of this comic, but it's basically, what if the ghost from the ring got married to a normal-ass artist white guy, and they had a kid who was half human, half ghost, and her name is Irma. And it's basically like a dark comedy slice of life, coming of age, horror fantasy webcomic that's basically just adorable, like all ages adorable. This would be a really good thing to introduce to your kids if you want to kind of get them a little bit interested in horror maybe not at a super young age because there is some like intense moments still in this comic like when Irma's trying to like play pranks on her friends or her babysitter she like does the classic horror movie make your face look demonic in the mirror and coming out of the TV kind of scares this would be a good thing to like show your 10 or 11 year old if you want them to like get some horror sensibilities it's one of those things where once you start reading it next thing you know it'll be like oh fuck two hours pass and I'm on like chapter 100 where did the time go? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's syndicated on Tapas and Webtoon. And it's written by Brandon J. Santiago and Donovan Tracy Gatier. It's great. It's very Calvin and Hobbes. If Calvin and Hobbes had a ghost girl instead of Calvin. What makes it really truly all ages is it does a lot of homages to like classic horror as well. One of the, my favorite things is Irma like loves this show that's pretty much just My Little Pony. But like when anyone else is in the room, she changes the channel to like a horror movie. So they'd be like, oh, Irma, what are you watching? Oh, the usual. And it's, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But then when they leave the room, she changes the channel from like that to like this My Little Pony show. So it's stuff like that. It's awesome. Really lighthearted, really fun. I think it's one of the highest rated webcomics on Webtoon ever. I think it's still being published to this day. Yeah, check it out, Irma. Awesome. Well, my recommendations are going to be super short since I took up a lot of time on the last episode. So I finally got around to reading Clive Barker's Weave World, which I've heard for years is one of his best. It is more dark fantasy than horror specifically, but there's lots of horror elements in it. And I mean, it's Clive Barker. So like, you really going to fight me on this? <laughs> it's It's interesting. You know, it's very, what if Narnia but way more like cum and gender fluidity and like blood magic and 
murder. That's kind of what it is. It's about this group of magic folk who were all being kind of systematically hunted down and persecuted by both humankind as well as this darker force called the Scourge. And they essentially used all of their magic talents and powers to take their entire world and all their culture and all their history and themselves and literally weave all of it into this carpet. And so there is this giant carpet that is essentially a gateway into this world. What? (laughs) And so it's all these different groups of people who are trying to get their hands on it. You have this young guy who like sees it and kind of zones in on the magic aspect of it and kind of becomes infatuated with it. You have this other woman who her great-grandmother was one of the keepers of this carpet and now she is kind of from that bloodline and it's kind of falling to her to be the new protector of it. There is this group of villains, one of whom is Immaculata, who is basically Voldemort, Pinhead, just everything kind of put together. She's like a dark sorceress and her two sisters are just these spirit wraith entities that she strangled in the womb and murdered them, but then they're actually still alive and following her around. There's some wild shit in it. It's one that I can totally see how over the last 30 plus years, there has not really been a successful adaptation of this book. There was at least one attempt at turning it into an actual movie, and then there was an attempt in the early aughts to do it as a miniseries. But just considering how weird it is visually, weird it is tonally and conceptually, but also just how big it gets visually. There's literally just a throwaway scene where a giant smoke monster thing is like smashing through Liverpool, tearing up apartment buildings and stuff. And like, there's no way that you're going to be able to do that on a decently moderate budget. That's the kind of stuff that they're going to strip out of that story if they ever try to adapt it. But Mm -hmm. it's also just really weird. Like, Immaculata, the female sorceress villain character, and the other main female lead both use a like Benny Chesarit style power called the Minstrum, which is literally like smoke goop water tendrils that pour out of their bodies and they can like whip people around with it and smash doors open and stuff like that. That's purposely named, right? Yes, it is <laughs> okay. Minstrum with two U's at the end, but yeah, it's pouring out of orifices, eyeballs, nose, mouth, vagina, everything, and it's just this uncontrollable female rage power that they both have that's pretty fucking cool when it does go like full out but that's the kind of thing that no way they're going to have in a movie, right? That's just totally some Clive Barker insanity that you can only get away with in print. So yeah, that book was very interesting. I also read the Dark Horse comic that was published in the 90s. It was like a three-issue adaptation of it, and that was fairly interesting as well. So yeah, that was a fun read. Like I said, I've heard for years that's one of his more well-regarded books. I got the itch recently because... 
in the new Candyman movie, there's a scene where Yaya Mateen goes to meet Coleman Domingo's character, and he's reading a copy of Weave World. And it's just specifically like a little Easter egg, because of course Clive Barker wrote the original short story that Candyman was kind of based on loosely. So it was just kind of Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta kind of giving a nod to Clive Barker. But it kind of just got that itch on, like, okay, what is this? I've heard about it all this time, I know it has to do with a magic world and a carpet, but what is this exactly? And it was a lot more, like, dark and weird and wild and all the kind of Clive Barkery ways that I was expecting, I guess. So yeah, that was fun. Enjoyed it. And then other than that, you know, I really just kind of rewatched a few things. Heather and I rewatched Come True, which was an indie movie from this past year that I mentioned on an earlier episode that is about dream technology and weird sleep paralysis stuff. Visually, it's a very, very, very interesting movie. Great soundtrack, interesting performances. I would not say the story is perfect. I don't necessarily think the movie sticks the landing. It's very much a movie that exists to be a visual showcase, and then there's kind of this one interesting hook to the story, but I don't think that it fully commits to that, because the ending is a little bit of like, oh, this is what you were doing? Okay, sure. That's Anthony Scott Burns' follow-up to Our House, right? Yes. It also has the element of, I am like a college grad student, and you are a senior in high school, dot, dot, dot. You're 18, right? You're smart for your age. And then immediately, like, smash cut to them hooking up, and I was just like, oh, yeah. Heather said the same thing. She was like, just please promise me if you ever write your own indie movie of any kind, don't have a scene where a college grad student who's clearly seven years older than a high school student they're hooking up cool so anyway yeah that's a weird kind of off-putting element in the middle of that story but it's also two minutes of a story that has a lot of like weird turns and elements to it so it comes and goes very quickly because the rest of the movie is very visually intriguing and there's a lot of interesting ideas that that movie has i just don't necessarily think it sticks the landing on a second viewing but i was very very impressed with it on a technical level going back and re-watching it a second time and the soundtrack is fantastic i would definitely recommend check out the soundtrack even if the movie doesn't necessarily catch you it's very synth wavy but not in a dark carpenter kind of way more like a beach house pop synth kind of thing It's Pilot Priest and Electric Youth that collaborated on the soundtrack, but it very much has that super bubblegum pop wave kind of feel to it, but it's it's good. Mm. And then I guess to bring things right back down again, I realized that I still have not seen the third Rob Zombie Firefly family movie, Three from Hell. 
Let me maybe rewatch the other two to kind of jog my memory, because I know this third one introduces a brother character who was apparently just there the whole time, but not there, played by Richard Brake, and so they kind of jam him in as the third character, because Sid Haig was too far gone with illness at the time that they were filming, so he's not in it as much. So anyway, I rewatched House of a Thousand Corpses, and I rewatched. The Devil's Rejects, and yeah, they're very, very Rob Zombie, you know, like for better and for worse. (laughs) You know, I know a lot of people are definitely super opposed to Rob Zombie, just massive allergic stay away from Rob Zombie, (laughs) and there are people who are, you know, obsessed with those movies, and I kind of fall in the middle. Lauren, are you a Rob Zombie fan? I don't know that I would say a fan. I really like The Devil's Rejects. I think I've only seen House of a Thousand Corpses once. And then famously, I went to go see his Halloween when I was 12 and somehow ended up getting a ticket (laughs) by just walking up to the counter and asking for a ticket. (laughs) But yeah, I'm not not a fan, if that makes sense. But I don't have a sort of love for him. That makes a lot of sense because that's where, where I'm at. It sounds like all three of us might be on the same page. There are lots of things I do appreciate about his work, but then on the other hand, there's lots of stuff I can't stand about his work as well. I do think Sherry Moon is fine. She does a decent job. Like, I don't get the hate for that. It's just more his style. Like, sometimes it really works for me, and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, that's just kind of it. I don't think he's bad, and I hope he continues to make movies. I think he has an interesting eye for horror, but it is what it is. With Sherry Moon specifically, I don't get the whole criticism of, well, of course he just puts his wife and all of his movies well like get over it so many people do that mm-hmm. i think the issue is just sometimes she works great like in the firefly family movies and then the rest of the time she feels miscast you know i don't always feel like she's a good fit for the roles that he has her in i don't have a problem with him putting her in the movies though i i will say so it's been a couple of years since i've seen either of these movies and i think i liked house of a thousand corpses more this time than I ever have previously. Mm. And I think I disliked Devil's Rejects more this time than I ever have previously. Interesting. And that's not to say that, oh God, I'm massively obsessed with House of a Thousand Corpses now, and then Devil's Rejects is absolutely the worst thing ever. I think this is maybe the strongest positive and negative reaction I've had to both. So House of a Thousand Corpses is definitely a first movie. You really, really feel the mistakes he's making. It's not as polished from an editing standpoint. It's not as cohesive, necessarily, in the narrative. It takes a couple of weird left turns that seemingly are going to go one direction and then don't in others. The story doesn't quite fit together in terms of some of the character motivations, but I think it's the most fun. I think it's definitely a fun neon riff on Texas Chainsaw 2. Right. It feels like you're really going through the like murder ride from the gas station at the beginning of the movie. Like that's how the whole movie feels. It's like you're going through a chintzy neon lights and lots of booga booga jump out at you kind of plastic (laughs) skeleton scares, right? It's the most fun, I think, of all of his movies. And Devil's Rejects, in the complete opposite direction now, just feels so oppressively bleak you know, watching it again this time. And it's it's just so gratuitous in ways that are kind of off-putting. It's interesting in the sense that I think pop culture has become even more 
obsessed with true crime and true crime is just more mainstream and acceptable now than it probably ever has been Mm -hmm. there has always been a fascination with true crime especially again in america we've always been obsessed with true crime i think now is just the absolute apex with the amount of podcasts and books and tv shows and just like there's a whole tv network dedicated to true crime at this point You know, so it's very omnipresent, and the movie feels like, you know, okay, yeah, somebody just adapted this one particular instance of these grody 70s serial killers in Texas, right? You know, it feels very matter-of-fact in that way, like, here's all the details as they happen, and we're going to show you all these details just because that's what happened. But in so many ways, it just feels like, do we really need this moment? Do we have to have this scene? Why is this going on so long? Why are we spending so much time here? And it kind of of those well that's just how it happens so we have to do it that way of course but there's not any real levity in it in the way that house of a thousand corpses occasionally has it also takes some weird diversions in the story that work more or less depending kind of on what your mood is i guess like it kind of whiplashes from all the stuff at the motel to all the stuff at the whorehouse later and that's it's like so tonally weird and divergent with those two chunks of the movie and then of course it tries to pull the whole let's flip your sympathies from being against the three members of the Firefly family that you're following to being behind them and rooting for them ultimately. And I just don't fall into that empathy trap like I don't fall into that trick that he's trying to pull and get you to side with them at the end because of course the end of this movie is giant right into Valhalla essentially you know I just don't ever that trick is just not effective on me it doesn't work in really any media where I like fully side with definitively who the villains are you know this is a movie of basically nothing but villains (laughs) just some villains are worse than other villains villains right but i never really fall for that flip so it's just one of those where i think devil's rejects might be a better made movie because he's clearly grown as a filmmaker and i think you could say that about his first several movies like he learns how to frame things and he learns how to shoot things and he learns how to better pace and edit and build scenes right you know and i think he has regressed in that slightly and you know again i haven't seen three from hell that's ultimately what i'm gonna watch next but it was definitely a lot of fun to go back to house of a thousand corpses because it really is all the weirdness of rob zombie without as much of the like try hardness it's definitely juvenile it is definitely here's my yuck yuck 13 year old kind of humor that turns off a lot of people but it's not in the try hard kind of way that I find a lot of his later stuff goes to necessarily. Right. So yeah, I enjoyed rewatching both, I will say. I'm very curious to see then what this third one actually ends up being. So I guess I might report back on the next episode what my thoughts are there since that's the one that I'm most curious about now and I've heard very strong reactions for and against that movie. So, you know, I'll report back 
back, I guess. Actually, hearing you say that, it makes me want to revisit House of a Thousand Corpses, because I saw that a long time ago, and I know I saw it well before I saw Texas Chainsaw 2, and I dearly love Texas Chainsaw 2. I go so far as to say I like it more than Texas Chainsaw 1. Not that it's better, just that I like it more. It's more fun. Yes, it's more watchable to me. I can actually sit down on a Sunday afternoon with some popcorn (laughs) and uh, watch Texas Chainsaw 2 in a way I can't with Texas Chainsaw 1. So I might give it a rewatch as well and and see if post Texas Chainsaw 2, my opinion of it changes. Because I don't remember disliking it, but I remember just kind of going, okay, cool, next. Yeah, it feels the most like watching a music video of his, where it it just kind of has a pretty nonstop pace to it, but it's just fun, I think. That's a weird thing to say about a Rob Zombie movie, that it's fun. But <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's fun in the same way that Texas Chainsaw 2 is fun. There's just a heightened camp factor to it. Yes. That all of his other movies are missing. Is They're just all so dire and so try-hard and kind of their edginess that it's just not as enjoyable to watch, in my opinion, as House of a Thousand Corpses. Going back to your Texas Chainsaw comment, I do like the idea of you like two, maybe more than one, even though you're not saying it's a better movie because, again, going back to what I just did this past October, I think I prefer Halloween 3 more than the original Halloween, even though the original Halloween is by far a better movie. Yeah. It's more fun to me. Yeah, I definitely draw a distinction between liking something and thinking it's good because I I just have very scattershot taste, I think is a good thing. I think there are some things I like that are objectively good. And there's a lot of things I like that are objectively terrible. So I do draw a line in that criticism between liking and being good. The older I get, I think the more that's just everybody. I think that's just having an opinion and having your own personal taste and things. Because, like, the older I get, the more I realize that we all kind of have some wild takes on, like, stuff that's objectively good or objectively bad, but that, like, we prefer. I don't know. It's not that crazy to me. All right. Cool, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get started with our movie. So props to you, Aaron, for finding another Thanksgiving-themed horror movie. Lead us in. So this is the 1980s cult classic, Slasher. (laughs) Before we start, Brad and I have an announcement to make. Come on, honey. You tell them. Well... We're going to tie the knot. (laughs) Congratulations, Ma. Oh, Terry. Oh, Terry. I love you so much. Oh, that's really nice. Congratulations. I'm happy for you both. I really am. Thanks. I guess the toast is in order. Um, oh, it does. Here's to the new family. <laughs> well, I'd say that this big bird is ready for carving. Terry, you do the Well, seeing as how we have a new head of the family, I think it's time you started pulling your own weight around here. Uh, thanks, buddy. Hey. Listen, dig in, everybody. Dig in. I mean, on the other stuff. Oh, great. Oh, great. Okay. 
Lol, JK. Surprise, assholes. We're doing Blood Rage again, a.k.a. Nightmare at Shadow Woods, a.k.a. Slasher. So we didn't totally lie to you. And it was shot in 1983, came out in 1987, came out in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. Question yeah. mark, question mark. So, uh... Yeah, fuck all y'all. We're doing Blood Rage again, and uh, this time we drug another uh, innocent soul on to talk about it with us. My lovely sister-in-law, Lauren. What'd you think? I would maybe go so far as to say I might have suffered the most from this movie. I don't know if I was just not in the right headspace for watching it. I did not enjoy this movie. um... (laughs) I don't know that it's meant to be enjoyable. It was interesting because I did start off with the sort of mindset of, okay, this is just awful and funny, and I got some hearty laughs and enjoyment out of it for maybe the first 20 minutes and then very rapidly I just got extremely bored and proceeded to stay bored for the rest of the movie oh you're, you're telling me that Mark Soper saying it's not cranberry sauce like six different times and Louise Lasser losing her fucking shit didn't entertain you shockingly no to the point where I don't know if I actually texted you guys this or just thought about it, but I almost texted you to say, this movie is dumb and bad, and I resent you for making me watch it. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is great. I'm glad we got this opinion, because when we showed Jeff this movie, he loved it for all the really dumb reasons that Aaron and I love this dumb movie. Oh, dear. Because it is. It's a bad movie. Like, if you hate this movie, that I I mean, all the power to you. It's not a competent film whatsoever. So I'm kind of happy to get a negative view on this movie good actually i i do like to be the source of negativity in any given conversation <laughs> it, it was interesting i'm really curious to see what your thoughts are from a ethics standpoint <laughs> and a psychology standpoint how you feel about a lot of the things that happen in this movie in regards to how these two twins are treated and how the doctors in this movie take matters into their own hands aka like bring other student with a gun and go find the guy who's escaped from a mental institution curious to know how you feel about the mother's seemingly like going along with everything in order to like maintain the status quo yeah i just i'm curious to know what thoughts you have on all of this or if you just no thanks <laughs> let's say this because aaron i don't know about you i did not go re-listen to our last two blood rage episodes i don't know if you did lauren you told me you didn't because you wanted to go in with fresh thoughts on it you didn't want our past discussions to influence you so yeah listeners if we're repeating ourselves on certain stuff for you who are binging you know you could do it back to back back but it's been a full year and i chose not to like go back and listen to our past episodes so yeah if we're we're revisiting certain things it's because it is what it is so lauren with that in mind continue (laughs) i find it interesting that you're asking me for my thoughts because frankly the last coherent thought i remember having was are condoms illegal in this movie (laughs) so that kind of shows how quickly this movie lost me (laughs) let's start there this is like the fourth or fifth time I've watched it. This is our third episode on it. I started trying to pay attention to smaller details, which I think is just kind of one of those things you do like once you get to this point. 
who the fuck buys popcorn, is actively eating popcorn, and then immediately walks into, like, the most disgusting bathroom, like, possible, and just is like, cool, <laughs> I'll set the popcorn down here that I just bought. Not drop off the popcorn at my car or whatever. Yeah, that was rough. Derek, I think, first of all, it has been probably a long time since you have been to an actual movie theater. <laughs> Dude, I never bring food and drink into public restrooms like that, even when I, I mean, go to movies. yeah. I don't either because that's disgusting. <laughs> but yes. again, I think you underestimate the general public's ability to like defy the laws of good taste and general public health. Okay, then who the fuck sits in a bathroom to like Lauren's point to sell, I guess, illegal condoms that are, by the way, again, I, I know I have brought this up in a past episode, are pinned to his vest. So <laughs> that's defeating the purpose of the condom. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's Ted Raimi, by the way, Sam Raimi's brother. Okay, I saw the name Raimi and I was like, is it the same Raimi? Like, yeah, how many yeah. Raimis are there in the world? It is his brother, Tim who is a like that guy actor okay this was his first role this was literally the like i need to get an acting role that pays me money or i'm going home and i'm going to completely change my entire life trajectory and he just happens to get the role of condom salesman <laughs> in this movie <laughs> oh gosh so yeah other than louise lasser he is probably the most well-known person in this movie <laughs> oh wow so yeah as you probably noticed this movie does not have the title blood rage as it comes up and you're watching it because i remember you messaged <laughs> us and you were like wait is this the right movie yes it is okay yeah. yes yeah. It is. so that's definitely a thing this movie had like five different titles the movie also did not come out for a few years which is why everything looks very much dated for a movie that should have been in, you know, 1988. But yeah, it's a Thanksgiving horror movie. Yeah, it has about much to do about Thanksgiving in this movie. Like, I, I counted that it was five minutes maybe runtime of actual, like, Thanksgiving reference. I will argue it has as much Thanksgiving involvement as Halloween has in the original Halloween. That's my hot take for this episode. Ooh, I don't know if I agree with you on that. I wholeheartedly agree with you on that because I finished that sentence in my head as you were saying that sentence. <laughs> I don't know about that. That was a silent jinx. Yeah. Yes. Thanksgiving is such an afterthought in this fucking movie. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, if you've ever wondered what it looks like to have two actors play against each other as twins, one of whom is clearly just wearing a wig at all times, here you go. If you've ever wondered what Louise Laster would look like sitting barefoot on the floor of the kitchen eating Thanksgiving leftovers with her hands, here you go. That's not cranberry sauce. So, on that note, and I don't know if this is just because of my fucked brain because we're, we're doing this movie every year and I've watched it so many times. Hey, guys, the scenes where Mark Soper, both brothers, are on screen as adults actually kind of worked for me because the way they were, like, shot and edited and cut, they did a decent enough job of showing, like, this is supposed to be the same character portraying both characters on screen. 
It did the movie trick well enough for me to the point where I was just like, at least this is mildly competent in an otherwise totally incompetent movie. But again, I don't know if that's my own fucked head saying that. So Lauren, am I wrong there? So it's interesting that you say that because I would argue the opposite. Speaking of competence, I will call out, it is just one actor playing both Todd and Terry, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Yes>. So <laughs> I actually thought that actor actually did okay playing Todd, where there actually was kind of a clear difference. I'm about to make a comparison that's gonna maybe make your ears bleed, but in The Prestige you can tell when Christian Bale is playing the nice twin versus the evil twin. (laughs) I could tell when he was playing Todd versus playing Terry, right? Like the eyes were kind of different, the expression was different. Is it the caliber of Christian Bale in The Prestige? No. But (laughs) it was a shining light in this movie that did not have a lot. (laughs) So you're telling me it's not just how their hair is styled in both movies? Yeah. (laughs) It seemed different, but (laughs) the scene where it's right at the very end where Todd is looking at Terry and the camera is from behind Todd's head, it was like a gray wig. It was like a gray grandma wig. I was like, this is so (laughs) clearly a different person wearing the worst wig I've ever seen. I wholeheartedly disagree because that... Oof. My ass was just like, this is pretty good. <laughs> like, again, I, I'm just like skewed at this point. Right. If I had to trace it. So this is kind of taking a step back to just movie watching in general. One thing I've really started to realize about myself is when it comes to media, whether it is games or movies or shows or what have you, I'm almost like a picky eater where I am very picky about what I want to watch and I have to be in exactly the right mood to enjoy something. Sure. And so yeah. for this, I was thinking, you know, I'm watching it by myself on an afternoon where I'm really tired, all the sort of life stresses that happen. And I was watching it thinking, man, if I was hanging out with you two and we were watching it together, it would have been like funny the whole way through. We would have been like making fun of it and and kind of enjoying time together as much as watching the movie. But watching it by myself on a Saturday afternoon when if I had started it an hour earlier, I guarantee I would have fallen asleep. (laughs) I was not in the headspace for it. And also it is just a terror movie. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Yes. We watched it alone every time. Oh, dear. Uh, you might have. I actually drag my wife into it from time to time. <laughs> oh, I'm not I'm not that evil. <laughs> so something like, and I don't remember us talking about this, but like the drive-in theater movie is called The House That Cried Murder, which if you look that up, it's actually called The Bride, but it also has another alternate title called Last House on Massacre Street. It's directed by somebody different, but it was co-written by the director of this movie, John Grismer. So, hey, buddy, you had two different films that you showed in this movie. You had this one, like, at the beginning, and then you had, later on, Scalpel, which you also directed. I love the fucking balls of this director to be like, here are my two other horror masterpieces. I'm gonna put them in this movie, too. Just really showcase my work all around. I really think I want to do The Bride for our show now. And I also want to do Scalpel at some point too. So Scalpel I would get behind maybe but it's way more of a trashy psych drama than it is horror. Mm. The Bride I don't know that we'd be able to find anywhere. That's the problem. That might be a VHS rip on YouTube if we're lucky kind of situation. But Scalpel I think you should certainly watch just because it is insane trash. It is the most lurid, insane garbage, but I was jaw hanging open the entire time, like, oh my god, wait, are they really going there? What is this movie doing? So, you know, for 
somebody who made two movies, both are awful trash. I think like, okay, yeah, you succeeded in what you set out to do, which was at least be entertaining. <laughs> well, right. for you and I, not for Lauren. <laughs> well, again, like like Lauren mentioned, I think this movie works in a group setting. Yes. Once life gets back to normal a little bit more, I would love to like do a group watch of this movie somehow or another because I would bet anything that this movie plays like gangbuster when you're watching it with a crowd because there's so many weird details in the way that the room, Miami Connection, or any of those other weirdly earnest made with full beautiful conviction failures. and yeah. passion like kind of beautiful <laughs> failures these ambitious just trash piles kind of happen right? right where you watch them with a crowd and just there's that weird energy that you kind of feed off of because there's nothing cynical about the movie at all and there's something to appreciate about that but you know occasionally they are a little bit tough to just sit and watch by yourself like as much as I love the room it's not always a movie I just throw one, you know what I mean? So this is kind of the same way, which is why, you know, I like breaking this movie out once a year and talking about it, because right. it is one of those weird oddities that, like, I will continue to show people until people are just like, stop, please stop, <laughs> no, don't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I love how this is the official watch if you dare Thanksgiving horror movie. All other Thanksgiving horrors, bullshit, blood rage is, is our choice. But then I'm, I'm the weirdo that I still get a ton of fun and have a great time watching it by myself because I watched it by myself now three years in a row and like had a great time. Lauren, I do have to ask you because you did mention that you had some laughs. Was one of your laughs when the title card showed that this took place in Jacksonville, Florida? Because that for some <laughs> reason tickles me every single time I see it. <laughs> Thanksgiving horror movie is in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I think I literally said either oh joy or oh great out loud when that <laughs> happened. <laughs> that was... Yeah, and now I didn't even think that there wasn't a title card. Was that the first text on screen was Jacksonville, Florida? I think it might have been. I can't remember if Slasher appeared first or last. Oh, gosh. Like, yeah. It might have been the first text in the movie. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I'm even thinking, talking about watching this in a group setting, there's this whole section in the middle, which might have been at the end. I don't know. Time started to feel very strange as I watched this movie. There's like a section where the editing just gets really weird, where it cuts from the mom in the pink dress to the mom in a different outfit. And then an hour later, the mom's back in the pink dress. At multiple points, she's sitting on the awful red couch, sobbing into the phone for reasons. And then it cuts cuts to Terry and blonde girl number four on that couch making out and then later it cuts back to the mom still on the couch and I was just like what I think if we were watching it together again it would have been so fun but just watching it by myself I was just like what is going on I don't know what this is what about the <laughs> scene transitions where she's dialing the phone it keeps cutting back and forth to Dr. Berman getting stalked I think maybe the only quote unquote attempt at a jump scare in this movie is a quick cut from her on the phone to Dr. Perman cut in half and being like, ah! on the ground. Oh, dear. <laughs> and by the way, again, 
I can't stress enough how much I mean this when I say it. Dr. Berman fucking sucks at her job. And (laughs) it's not just the fact that she took that dipshit with her with a gun to go hunt her patient. Something I caught on this go around that I didn't catch the other times. In the scene where it's her like giving her notation dub over Maddie and Todd meeting. She says that she has never seen them interact together. Um, hey, Dr. Berman, haven't you been treating Todd this entire time? What do you mean you've never seen them interact before since he was a child and now like a fucking college age student? Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I think speaking to just the quality of the movie in general, too, I took minimal notes, which usually I try and come into this with at least some talking points. But one thing I noticed is the volume was so inconsistent. I turned on the subtitles. There were no subtitles until about halfway through the movie when and they just randomly started having subtitles. So one of my notes is literally inconsistent volume and no subtitles. That's what I had about this movie. Just the parts where the mom would whisper and not in a stage whisper, a genuine whisper, I had to crank the volume to hear it. That's what I got out of this movie is complaints about the sound mixing. That's that's where we're at. So to kind of touch on like something you said, and this is not your fault because I didn't really know the first time I watched it either like what the hell was happening with the mom on the phone but I think I got it this time so like I did take a lot of notes instead of paying attention to like the overall story for like the third or fourth time ever I decided to like really zero in on details on stuff that like I overlooked and I know I didn't bring up in the past I think she starts off trying to call over to Todd's mental health center she starts saying like has he really escaped like let me just make sure he's still there And then it shifts into her trying to call her fiance, who's been murdered by Terry. And then like it's her just freaking out because she can't get in touch with him, even though I'm he's probably only like three houses down because he's just in the management office. Anyway, so she's flipping out and losing it because she can't get in touch with her fiance. I also did a count or I tried to keep up with a count. I call this the lesser wine count of like (laughs) how many full glasses of wine she had throughout this movie. There's your drinking game right there is you. You take a drink every time she takes a drink. (laughs) Yes. So God knows how many, because they were drinking, I think, white wine at dinner. So God knows how many glasses she had there. So you know how when you have red wine, you're only supposed to pour like a third of the glass, fourth of the glass, you know, let it sit and swirl around. That way you're able to smell it as you taste it. No, no, no. She fills it all the way up. No, no, no. This is Jacksonville, Florida in 1983, (laughs) and you're drinking boxed wine. Carlo Rossi, Ossi Spumante, (laughs) horseshit wine. No, you drink by the glass full, sir. And counting a full glass, and at one point she pours it into a glass bottle that's way bigger than a wine glass, and she fills that thing up. I counted at least four times. It was probably five that I just kind of missed because the editing was so fucking wild. So she had at least I'm going to say six because we'll say she had two glasses of the white wine. It So she is wine drunk, losing her mind throughout this movie. Something else I noticed, going back to the beginning, her date, the guy who like wants to fuck even though her kids are in the trunk, his Hawaiian shirt is either the most rad Hawaiian shirt or the latest Hawaiian shirt and I couldn't quite <laughs> decide which one because it almost looked like it was a southeast Gulf Coast Mississippi looking version of a mm, Hawaiian shirt. So yeah. his Hawaiian shirt reminds me of if you made the like full wall graphic image 
of the like beach orange sunset with the shadow impression of the palm trees that was in Scarface in that one scene it's literally the entire wall in that office right if you took that tried to make it your computer's desktop wallpaper but because it's so low res of an image your computer automatically like tiles it a million times across the screen that's what that shirt looks like is if you just took that printed it out and printed it on a shirt yeah you know i kept thinking the entire time i rewatched it this time this was my focus this year was just how can we make this better Hmm. how can we make this movie better and i began thinking about like you know what inspirations are they pulling from aaron how can you make the mona lisa a better picture i mean (laughs) you can well so it's clear that you know all the stuff with louise lasser cleaning the house is clearly inspired by chantal ackerman's classic jean dilman right there's little bits and pieces of oh yeah this is a woman going through her daily routine for like three and a half hours just time seems to get lost in that vortex wine drunk and eventually like (laughs) bad things happen as she unravels that's clearly okay this entire middle section is just that yeah but does that masterpiece have their character eating corn on the floor right out of the fridge that one doesn't but it does have her like burning potatoes so you know same difference there you know i began thinking about brian de palma's sisters in terms of all the twin stuff you know i i was getting artsy with my thoughts I began thinking about how can we recast this movie with people who were like around at the same time. My only thought was, of course, we can't recast Louise Lasser. Yeah. She is the like musty glue that holds this entire movie together, right? But, you know, I was thinking, who better than Mark Soper to play weird twins, one damaged, one psychotic and murderous? And only one name came to mind, and that is Crispin Motherfucking Glover. <sighs> yeah. Uh... So I was about to make a joke that no one could replace Mark Soper, but then you threw out Crispin, and that's kind of perfect. Yeah, think Friday the 13th era pre-Back to the Future, just weird Crispin Glover, you know, I'm Todd, I'm Todd, I'm Todd, just <laughs> screaming at the yeah. end, right? Okay, there you go, let's, let's go with him. For the hot woman with the wild hair, whose baby is just at home basically by itself because the babysitter is hanging out, just drinking like straight up Bloody Mary vodka. <laughs> Trying to bang people, yeah. Yeah, we can only go with Leslie and Warren from Clue, and that role and her like weirdo nerdy boyfriend guy let's go in the complete opposite direction let's also go with a guy who did the makeup for the movie and let's also up that as well too so lauren the nerdy guy that she goes on the date with ed french he is a you know like c-list makeup guy celebrity dude right he has done makeup and special effects for a bunch of stuff and continues to work and like i've seen him pop up in weird special effects commentaries and stuff like that from time to time he's done a lot of horror and a lot of good horror too yeah and of course he's gonna have the best death with that head hanging in the yes. doorway and if anything that's one of the things you could say about this movie is the gore in it is especially over the top insane right. not just because it's ridiculous but because it is so viscerally weird and mean so let's follow that path and let's recast him with the ultimate 
horror movie 80s makeup guy, and let's go in the opposite direction of nerdy weird guy who's like, hmm, creme de menthe when he's, you know, looking over all the liquors. <laughs> uh, let's go with the sex machine himself, Tom Savini, as the date and make him like the smoothest dude ever, just as dashing date man who gets murdered. Still has all the same exact lines. Yes, all the same French dialogue. Does, but he just delivers it in a suave way. Just the difference in it being completely awkward and stilted to just the smoothest. Just him being like, huh, body liquor. What are we doing with this? Just like, yeah, body liquor. What are we going to do with this? Just, you know, give me the <laughs> same, same line, just different reading. Make sure you kids don't drive anywhere, all right? Stay safe. <laughs> yeah. See, I'd be on board with that. She deserves that. That character made me sad. I was like, I want the best for you, lady. Yeah. You know, I was definitely thinking a couple of different people for what's the main actress. What is her character's name? I can't remember. It's something. Karen. Karen. That's Karen. Right. The weirdest yeah. name for a horror movie main character. I kept thinking of Sharon when he was like, Sharon! I just kept thinking that anytime he was like chasing her and yelling for Karen. With her character, I was bouncing back and forth between a few people. And I think I landed on, let's recast her with Karen. Catherine Mary Stewart from Night of the Comet and The Last Starfighter. So let's roll with that as kind of our main cast. Are you going to recast the produce the producer of this movie, by the way? Oh, oh, oh. Marianne yes, Cantor yes. is Dr. Berman in this movie as well. Yes, and there is only one person that came to mind for that role that I think would make it even more dynamic. Speaking of Brian De Palma's sisters, I'm going to go with Margot Kidder. As the doctor. Nice. <laughs> what about her goon that like has the reefer and the gun? Oh, whatever. He can be literally anybody. But yeah, like give me Margot Kidder bringing that extra, extra, like truly insane energy to this movie and kind of have her as like a good counterbalance to Louise Lasser's kind of crazy and just have both of them at opposite ends of the spectrum. I used my techniques as a trained professional in psychology to calm Louise Lasser down down does fucking nothing but look at her calm down it's okay yeah. i need some halloween for donald pleasant's energy right you know and i think margot kidder would certainly bring that so yeah like that's what i kept thinking this entire time was how can we make this movie legit legit in the sense of like let's turn it into an actual 80s cult movie right that was kind of my like fan cast in my head of who can we kind of throw in here just to make it even more insane but anyway yeah like every time i rewatch it i find like you were mentioning earlier new little bits and pieces just everything from like the letters glued to the sign for the apartment that clearly <laughs> like weren't there to begin with and they just stuck them over the front to like who is that random person walking on the like weird swamp boardwalk in the middle of the night when Terry is out or Todd yep. is out murdering or t no Terry Terry Todd <laughs> Terry Todd where <laughs> Terry is out murdering people there is just this one rando person out there just hanging out who is that what is their deal why are they not inside being safe a little girl by herself on a That's Thanksgiving night <laughs> looking for her kitty is that one 
one of that little girl's parents because her parents are clearly nowhere to be found. Is she alone on Thanksgiving? Also, what is going on there? Dr. Bourbon, again, going back to her fucking sucking at her job. He tells her, the manager, her uh, Louise Lasser's fiance, tells her, like, there's a forest path that he could be on in the back. Go there. Okay, I'll go search the forest area. Goon, you go look around and offer people weed, I guess, to draw them out. <laughs> you find her. She's not on the walkway. She's in the middle of the fucking forest, just wandering around, not even, like, in a clearing. Like, she's walking through foliage. Begging to be murdered by a slasher. Yeah, I agree with you. Right. This movie, every time I watch it, I find little new things. It's like Dark Side of the Moon, a concept album that's so, every time you listen to it, it's something new. But like, it's if Dark Side of the Moon was only made by Sid Barrett and <laughs> Roger Waters and Nick Mason and all of them and David Gilmour just had to go along with whatever he said. Right. I will say, I don't want to just dump on the movie either. In general, I think in any any work of media, there are things to be found to view positively. When you said that it made you laugh a couple times right i was about to say the hardest laugh i got in this movie was i didn't realize it was an apartment complex somehow that just went right past me so the part when the doctor shows up at the house the fiance steps forward and goes i'm the manager here i went of what the house <laughs> like <laughs> what you notice how fucking barren that entire apartment complex is there's like seven people there <laughs> that got a hearty hearty laugh from me <laughs> just you're the manager of the house. Well, did you notice the next lines is Louise Lasser running up and going, what's that gun? Oh, gosh. Hey! I got him, Doc. Put that gun down. It's his twin. Can't you see? You're a Terry, aren't you? Don't worry about the gun. It's only a tranquilizer gun. Now, listen, I'm Dr. Berman. I'm from the Institute. I want to see your mother. Dr. Berman, yeah. did you find him? No, I haven't even looked yet. What's that gun? It's okay, Mom. <laughs> Not why do you have a gun? What's that gun? I think it's really interesting to try and view this of how would you make this good? Because the bare bones of a solid movie are there. This concept is something that if I was just scrolling through again a Sunday afternoon horror movie and saw one that was, oh, this twin frames his twin for murder and now he's escaped and it's going to be a reckoning or what have you. I would watch that movie. That would be a interesting movie to watch. Yeah. So to that point, Lauren, you mentioned like you find that in uh, interesting premise. This is something I I tackle and I, I struggle with every single time we watch this movie. What do you think is Terry's endgame here? Like, what do you think makes him pop off? He kills in the beginning as a little kid, frames his brother, mm -hmm. I guess has a normal life because he has this friend group, he has a girlfriend, and he seems like he's a bit of an ass, yes, because like he's obviously hitting on that other girl right in front of his girlfriend to the point where he's going to meet up with her later. And then like his mom says we're engaged, and then he pops off to the point where like he is going to murder everybody except his mom including people I'm guessing he's been friends with for years now. What do you think is Terry's thing here like why is right. the blood rage happening so the reading that i got from it is i don't think that he is sort of sociopathic in the i'm just a serial killer who's out to serial kill people this is what i do all the time kind of way you're right that he is maybe someone who is very entitled i think he's probably pretty arrogant and views himself as being very superior in a variety of ways and just does things that he thinks he can get away with and the question I have before I say this is, does he kill anyone before he finds out that his brother has escaped? Or is it just after he finds out his brother has escaped? It's kind of a combination of that and like after his mom announces the engagement as well. Okay. The movie treats it like the engagement is like 
where he snaps because like that's when the music cue hits. Right. But then like right after that, we get the phone call uh, about his brother escaping. Maybe it's a convenience of time. Okay, now that my brother's escaped, I can let out this rage by murdering all my friends right. and all these people that live here and then placing the blame on him. That's how I read it was just I can get away with this maybe out of hatred for his brother or clear like resentment for his mom. One of the five notes I took was right at the beginning when they're at the movie, the kid goes, mom's at it again. And I was like, that's a bit, don't shame your mom. But then I didn't realize that it was her mom on a date with uh, another man and not necessarily like her mom with his father. But yeah, that's kind of how I read it is maybe just resentment toward the mom because maybe he doesn't think that she's the best mother that he would want or deserve. And maybe this kind of resentment toward his twin for always getting attention. Reading a lot into next to nothing from the movie, but that was the sense I got. No, I'm I'm asking you to write a thesis when there is absolutely no sources to cite. (laughs) Right. If this movie is going to stick with me for the rest of my movie watching life, this is the type of stuff I like have fun thinking about because like, okay, Terry was able to do that so easily when they were kids and then dot, 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 10 plus years or however many years, he's just normal? Right. Does he ever murder anyone on the side during this time? Dot, dot, dot. Because he, he flips so easily and casually into being able to just murder all these people he was just having a football game with earlier in the day. It's just so fascinating to me. Like, And again, I think it's more just the movie's incompetence unless there being any deeper seated thing there. But one thing I did catch this time that might help me on my quest to try and finally figure out Terry, I noticed that when he kills Dr. Berman's goon, which I still love, it's still such a king moment for Terry where he's like, yeah, I'll hit that shit and smokes pot and then murders that guy. But like the thing that like makes him pop off is that the goon says, which I don't know his name, I'm just going to call him Berman's goon for the rest of this time. As they're smoking pot, Berman's goon says, yeah, you'll never guess this. Todd, you know what the funny thing is? Todd's saying it was you who killed that guy that night. And then Terry immediately stabs him, kills him. And no, he as doesn't he's... immediately do it. He waits a solid seven seconds of beat and then reacts. Yeah, then reacts. <laughs> just kind of was like, um, what do I do? You can like see the cogs in his head turning in real time where he's just like, uh, mm, uh, stab. <laughs> but that's the thing. He already murdered the fiance and I think he might have murdered someone else in between. I can't remember. But he's obviously the blood rage has started and the spree is started so like why hesitate but the thing that i caught was as he's stabbing the guy he's shouting at him it was todd who did it it was todd and so like that's where i think okay this is what drives him like maybe he kind of in a way convinced himself as he's the one doing all this killing that like it's still todd being the one doing it he's mad at the guy for even suggesting that he was the one who killed in the beginning as he's killing him <laughs> like but then like later on in the movie he just seems like he's having a great time killing everyone and then as he's chasing karen like playing with their dead bodies so who the hell knows they're dead bodies that are clearly breathing at multiple points okay <laughs> yes lauren yeah glad you brought that up so like as i said earlier i really looked for details here are all the times that i caught goose on camera um <laughs> i mean how, how long is this episode gonna go because i do need to <laughs> sleep at I some point <laughs> these are just ones that i like paid attention to and caught the scene where it cuts to the fiance's corpse. He's just sitting there like as Louise Lasser's trying to call him and it shows his corpse and his one hand is cut off and he's, his head is splayed open. His other hand is resting his head. The hand that's remaining flinches. Right when the phone rings, it flinches actually like the actor couldn't completely like stop that reflex of like, oh, I gotta answer the phone. When they're on the tennis 
tennis court and like Andrea walks off the tennis court and the guy just lays down on the tennis court and like looks up at the stars, I guess. And like Andrea is going to look for the ball that he accidentally hit over the fence. Andrea actually walks back on frame when she's not supposed to right as the ball gets rolled back to him to set up like that false jump scare. You can clearly see her like walk on frame. Oh shit, I'm not supposed to be in the shot. Stop. And then like it cut. Reconfirming a goof I found last year. Again, if you look over Terry's shoulder as he says, that is not cranberry sauce. I see him over there right as he's about to stab Artie with the turkey fork. There's definitely somebody in frame right over his shoulder who like walks on and is like, oh shit, shouldn't be on frame and like ducks out of frame. Also too, <laughs> the dead bodies in the sauna towards the end when like he like does the jokers like, oh guys, you get a room, huh? Sorry to interrupt. That's where they're clearly breathing still. Like you said, Lauren, you could see to both their chests rising up and down. Karen, when she hides the baby under the sink, which that's fucking wild because if you pay attention, she doesn't shut the sink door all the way. Right. The fake baby's leg is still sticking out of the, of the door. And I love how the baby was just crying and then is a miraculously completely quiet as Terry is around like stalking them. So those are just the goofs I caught this go around. Right. Artie, the one kind of decent character in the movie, you might say. Artie actually seems like kind of a decent guy. You could tell he kind of has a thing for Karen, but like doesn't want to ruin their friendship. But also like she's still with Terry. So he kind of like doesn't act on it, I think. But he also doesn't immediately try to mack on her the minute they're together like every yeah. other character does to every other character. You can tell they've been friends even before like Terry and her were together. Like They've been friends for a long time and yeah, but then he just gets not cranberry sauce already and then stabbed in the turkey <laughs> in the neck with a turkey fork. Another note I got and I know I brought this up is that radio show the dad's listening to, right? <laughs> and I brought up in the past how like when he gets his hand cut off, it goes an eye for an eye and a hand for a hand. I paid attention. It's called the Lord Never Sleeps radio show, which that's fucking menacing name for a radio show. <laughs> yeah, really. The other thing that I caught this go around is when Louise Lasser actually like leaves her apartment and actually goes looking for people and she finds her fiance dead. If you listen to the radio show, this is what it says, kind of giving away like elements of the plot in Blood Rage. I quote, you may even fool your mother, but in the end you will answer to the Lord and only the Lord. And so it is written and so it shall be when a man goeth into the woods with his neighbor to get wood and his hand fetches the stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slippeth from the helve and landeth upon his neighbor that he die and dot 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 from there so like axe going into the woods with terry who is your friend who you think is your friend i'm assuming his friends all live in this fucking apartment complex because they are always hanging around it and then like you may even fool your mother like Terry trying to fool his mom and, and framing Todd for all these murders. It's maybe something that's too clever for this movie to capitalize on, but I appreciate that little small detail. So I think let's try to close out right here and let's talk for a brief moment because you and I specifically in the last episode, we talked about how Oculus does not at all in any way, shape or form necessitate a sequel, right? And this movie I feel like cries out desperately into the night for a sequel. <laughs> so let's discuss like what our takes would be on a sequel for this movie. Ooh. Okay. So at the end of the movie, Todd is the only one left alive, right? And yeah, Karen and the baby. But yeah, Todd out of like the family, Todd is the only one. What would the see? Ooh. 
Well, first off, do you even think this deserves a sequel? Because Aaron and I, that's 100% yes. I don't know if you're on board. but I mean, deserves is a very loaded word. Would I want to... S- I don't even want to finish that phrase. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in this question. Let's say that. So I assume, Aaron, you have a take since you came up with the question. So, yes, I do. I want to capitalize on the overused, becoming kind of horseshit take of let's do a sequel set decades later dealing with the next generation. Like, we're going to go <laughs> Goonies to this time it's the kid. This is a very 90s tropey thing with sequels, I feel like. Well, it is now, too. I mean, we're going like Ghostbusters, the grandkids generation, right? Right. Same with Saw. Yeah. So what happens to that baby at the end of this movie? Right? So, what if little Babe grows up, uh, I guess, let's say, ends up in the foster system, dot, dot, dot? What about Karen taking care of her? Why would Karen take care of that baby? Why? I don't know, man. Why does anything happen in this movie? <laughs> yeah, why would Karen be like, I'm 24, I'm in college, I'm trying to figure out my life. No, I'm not gonna take a baby from a murder victim and raise it as my own child, right? I feel like Karen would maybe be keeping tabs on this child and kind of you know pop in every once in a while either that or she would have nothing to do with the baby but yeah have this kid grow up go through the foster system eventually who is that who's that in the shadows over there keeping an eye on me been watching me this entire time oh it's todd he comes back and of course todd was never the murderous one right but somehow like seeing the child who looks a lot like his brother because then we learn that dot 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 maybe the baby was todd's baby because you don't learn who the father was in the or terry's or terry yeah i'm todd i'm terry (laughs) so yeah the baby is secretly terry's baby with the woman because again he had an affair with that woman yeah like we've mentioned many times we know that condoms in this universe are somehow illegal <laughs> and they're all poked through with holes because you bought them from a it dude only cost a dollar by the in way in a drive-through bathroom right so yeah we find out that this child is actually terry's child the entire time todd shows back up and it triggers something in the child to go into a rage one would maybe say a blood rage dot 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 yeah oh. this is why i don't write okay. Okay, Okay. I had a whole bunch of thoughts the whole time you were talking there, but I think the one I would land on, and my worry here is this would get us kind of away from a slasher movie, so whoever is writing my idea here would have to really anchor it to make sure it would be a slasher. But what I'm thinking is what if a sort of cult of fascination has developed in the decades since these murders around Terry, where Terry is viewed as this fascinating, like, Ted Bundy-type or not Ted Bundy, let's say like Charles Manson type figure of, oh, we have the great Terry who committed all these murders and he was a rock star and a badass and we think he's so cool. So he has this group of people that are fascinated with him and they decide that they are now going to be obsessed with the baby. And so Karen, who is now a psychologist who was inspired by her experiences to now find out about abnormal psychology and criminal 
criminal psychology and does what Dr. Berman uh, sucked at. She <laughs> finds out about this and she's like, we have to do something to save and protect this young person, the baby, because all of these people are going to come after him or her because of their fascination with Terry. And so she gets Todd, who, because of his troubled past, I'm now imagining is something like the guy from Don't Breathe, only minus the sexual assault, where he... is scary and tough now and so she gets him and they have to like fight against this cult that is going to come and finish terry's work and kill the baby cult of terry yeah the cult of terry so that's two tropey things that we've gone I'm going to go the old classic. I'm going to go with the one where we go back. It's modern times. Todd is around because Mark Soper, at least according to his website, he's looking good. He still looks like he's around and doing stuff. Get him back. He plays Todd now. And Todd is hallucinating the ghost of Terry, trying to get him to commit murders and have the blood rage and go after Karen and the baby to finish the job, finish his work. To the point where we even do it like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 style, where like you could digitally recreate Louis Slasser, I guess, <laughs> um, or just recast her as Ghost Mom, also trying to tempt him into getting into the family businesses, so to speak. But then the true hero, the actual hero of the story, the one who is going to show up, meet up with Karen again, and like help her protect the baby who is now an adult, get them to safety, and fight off the Todd Terry quote unquote who which personality is going to win in the end beast that he is. It's Ted motherfucking. Ramey and he is back he was there the night Terry committed the first murder and framed Todd as a kid he saved up his money from his condom sales went to college to do journalism got on the case of blood rage like when the original blood rage happened he was the journalist who covered the whole story won awards for it is like now like a retired journalist but he's keeping tabs on everyone because he feels connected to the story and then you bring Ted Ramey and have him star as the hero of this and like he has to battle Todd Terry again you put it I don't know you have it set during Thanksgiving again at one point you could have Todd Terry chasing them through like one of the football games that takes place every Thanksgiving you could I don't know like I'm trying to think of what haven't we done I mean there's also the other thing where you could somehow put it in space you could somehow have it take place if we're going to be in Florida world's our oyster let's have it take place in Orlando and just have them like break into one of the theme parks and like chase them around around in there go full joker with it i don't know like yeah that'd be fun i don't know if we have the budget for that we need to be realistic (laughs) about our budget here guys yeah what attractions are in jacksonville florida that we could potentially (laughs) afford i mean there's an ikea (laughs) oh he could chase them through an ikea that'd be pretty great so it looks like Uh, As far as Jacksonville, Florida is concerned, there are a lot of animal-related places. There are a lot of nature and wildlife. So so according to visitjacksonvilleandthebeaches.com, we have the Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens, which, you know, okay, sure, like through a zoo, that would be fun because you could eventually have... Todd get thrown into like an alligator pit or something. <laughs> uh, or no, no, he throws himself in to save their lives in his last act of defiance against his brother's personality that's taking over his body. He like throws them, he condemns them to die. <laughs> See, <Yeah. laughs> I want Todd to be a good guy in the second one. Ideally, there is a moment where
moment with Karen where maybe now that Todd is kind of out and about in the real world and is is able to be socialized and and, uh, live outside of the institution, where they do a callback to him saying, I've never kissed a girl before. Yeah, that that would be a good callback. I'm not going to lie. I'm super into this Cult of Terry idea. I know it was my idea, but I would watch the hell out of that movie. Oh, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. I mean, I went with the boring, like, oh, but the twin ghost is now trying to take over the body. We also have a tiger rescue place called the Caddyshack Ranch, and that is Caddy spelled (laughs) C-A-T-T-Y, Caddy. We also have Little Talbot Island and Big Talbot Island. Sounds thrilling. But uh, yeah, I would be down to like smush all of these ideas together into the ultimate Blood Rage sequel. So maybe by next year we can uh, all get together and have a table read of this script that we're going to write. And, you know, let's see if we can make this turkey happen. Uh, I do have one final question for you, Lauren. But real quick, just a couple more points that I'm going to end on. Again, the football game is the lamest shit I've ever seen. (laughs) Worse than the room, even. They're not playing football. Like, I don't know what game they're playing, but it's not one from this planet. Terry's bookcase is wild. I don't know if you paid attention to, like, all the stuff on his bookcase. Like, he has that awesome Yoda head mask thing sitting there. But then he has what I'm guessing is either, like, an airsoft rifle or a replica rifle. Mm -hmm. It looks like a real fucking rifle. Like, semi-automatic rifle. Insane stuff. Uh, Also, real quick, if you go to markjsoper.com, um, Mark Soper's website, um, you can get a little bits and pieces about him. One of my favorite parts is as an actor, he co-starred with Sandy Dennis and Patrick O'Neill in Vessel of Wrath with Tom Waits and Joanna Gleason in The Mississippi. No idea that he was with Tom Waits in that movie and starred in Parole with Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Naughton. He was a re- season regular on Knott's Landing and starred in the recently re-released, re-edited cult favorite Nightmare on Shadow Ridge didn't even use Blood Rage or Slasher used Nightmare on Shadow Ridge playing the demented twin sons of Louise Lasser <laughs> like didn't even name drop his character or anything oh one last thing I did pay attention to Richard Einhorn's music cues in this movie as well fucking love it he's done other stuff he's done Don't Go in the House Eyes of the Stranger The Prowler Dead of Winter etc etc good job once again Richard dig the soundtrack of this movie mm-hmm. uh, but yes Lauren final question for you the whole purpose of our show is to explore horror themes and just how scary these movies are. A, is this a scary horror movie? B, are there any deeper themes this deals with? Uh, no, it's not scary. Oh, are there deeper themes? <sighs> that's. I'm just going to say that's a no. I mean, I think there are. It's just... It's a lot. So I think there's some really interesting stuff you could talk about with gender here. Because I think it is interesting that all of the female characters, maybe with the exception of Karen, are kind of struggling a little bit. Like you do have the two single moms that I think you could draw a really interesting discussion about them and how there is this kind of dependence on men and trying to find the right man. And as you're trying to raise children, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think the way that the male characters treat the female characters is really interesting. I mean, I guess there's kind of questions of identity. Something interesting with parenthood, the fact that the mom from the jump is just like, no, Todd is bad. Even though she continues to treat him like a child, is just like, no, Todd is bad. And no point does she believe that it's been Terry and not Todd. I mean, I think there is a lot to talk about here. It does play with the Oedipus syndrome a little bit in that weird way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I wonder too if there is, you could maybe say that she's more attached to Terry because she's kind of struggled to have a consistent male figure in the family. Maybe she depends on him a little bit more than she would otherwise, and maybe he takes advantage of that. I think there is a lot here. It's just to actually get into it would maybe give this movie. Yeah, it's Blood Rage, not another. <laughs> yeah, all in all, I will say, I again, I, I didn't completely hate it. I think if I wasn't so tired when I watched it, it would have been a better watch. But yeah, I think there's stuff you could read into there. So yeah, it's it's a yeah with an asterisk on the end of it. <laughs> it's a very qualified yeah. 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 So yeah, I will just uh, reiterate the thought I had watching it, which is this movie is dumb and bad. And I resent you for making me watch it. That's my final review. <laughs> well, I'm going to spend the next two or three years working on this uh, sequel script. And we're going to drag a few more friends into watching this trash heap. And then maybe, who knows, <laughs> in a few years we'll do an actual live read episode where we go through the script and we get everybody back to play characters in the sequel to Blood Rage. The Blood Rage Rages On 2. Harder. Yes, please. My inner theater kid just got very excited. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like a plan. And with that, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by a movie monster boy, Aaron, and a coward, me, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Or in this case, Talk about Blood Rage for the third time in a row. You can find us at all the podcatchers, uh, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podbean. Just claimed our show on Good Pods, Stitcher, Google Play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Please follow us on all, on whatever is your platform of choice and leave us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. We are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Check out our Spotify music playlist pinned on top of our Twitter for some spooky tunes and stuff that Aaron and I have thrown up there that are inspired by horror movies and just horror in general. Also, speaking of music, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode. You can check out his stuff at his band camp, Opossums, Big Clown, uh, what else, Aaron? Yeah, those two, Party Gator, Yellow Starfighter number nine. I don't know. He's got so many at this point, but they are all found on his band camp. You can check them out. Definitely throw him a couple of bucks, get you some good music. Thank you once again, Lauren, for coming back. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, not sorry that we exposed you to blood rage. <laughs> it's all right. I'll get over it eventually. Any final thoughts before to take us out on, Aaron? Hold on. Give me just a second. I'm on a phone call. Oh, great. That, that's a great idea. Oh, great. Operator, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yes, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. Hello? Uh, well, the problem is that um, my Sally just escaped from her school. Well, actually, she ran away. Actually, it, it's a minstrel institution. She ran away from her her mental institution. Now, um, well, it, well, now I was there earlier today to to bring her her pie. Uh, I I always bring her an individual piece of pie with a little plastic fork and a napkin, and I put it in a little box with string from a bakery. What? What? What number do I want? Get me my Sally! No, please! 
Get me my Sally! That's not cranberry sauce, Sally. <laughs>